You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Well, church family, you have made it to the end of Genesis. By a show of hands, how many of you have been with us since Genesis chapter 1? That's amazing. Way to go. Um, And way to go if you came in partway through. Uh, I think we've been in Genesis for roughly the last 20 months, so it's been quite a journey. But what a gift to be able to go verse by verse, to have a foundation of God's Word. Yeah, you can clap for that. Thanks, Lori. That's that's nice. Uh, There's something profound about knowing the book of Genesis. When you have foundations in Genesis, it speaks to much of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And so if you are new with us and you'd like to go back online, both our podcasts and our website, you can watch it uh, on on YouTube or you can listen to it um, on podcasts. But Genesis, verse by verse, has been really just a tremendous treat to go through. And here we are in the last section of Genesis 50, the final chapter of Genesis. Uh, To catch you up in case you're new, or just to give you a little bit of a refresher, uh, we have been looking at the life of Joseph. And Joseph is a prefigure or a foreshadowing of King Jesus. Much of Joseph's life represents what Jesus comes to do. Much of what Joseph does physically in Egypt is what Jesus comes to do spiritually for the world. And it's been incredible to see the parallels between Joseph's character and pointing us to Jesus. And last week, we looked at how Joseph and his 11 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob, buried their father, the final patriarch in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob lived to be 147 years old. And his sons come around his deathbed. And Jacob, with his dying words points them back to God's promises. And we really took a look at how last week, even in that process of grieving, the hardship that comes from losing a loved one, someone beloved to you, when we grieve, as Christians, we grieve differently from the rest of the world. We still have significant pain in our grief, but we grieve with the hope and assurance that we get to spend eternity with Christ and with our loved ones who have gone before us in Christ. And how grieving really deepens our walk with God. It deepens our faith when we can't depend on our own strength, when we can't comfort ourselves, and we cry out to God, and he meets us right where we are. We also took a look at how the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection, is both the anchor and the comfort for our souls in those seasons of grieving. It's not drink, it's not drug, it's not busyness, It's not trying to distract ourselves. It's literally the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that anchors us where we need to be in the truth of God's word that comforts our soul. And then lastly, we really looked at how Joseph and his brothers honored their father Jacob in his death. They took a 200-plus mile journey from Egypt back to the land of Canaan because Jacob wanted to be buried where God had promised them a promised land. And we talked a lot about honoring your father and mother, not just as little kids obeying their parents, but even more so toward adult children, helping their parents and their grandparents finish well, caring for them, not neglecting them, not putting them away, but leading them spiritually, emotionally into the arms of Jesus. And as we see this death of Jacob, after the mourning periods are over, Joseph and his brothers return to Egypt and life goes on. And it's very difficult when you've experienced some kind of tragic loss or traumatic event in your life. It would be nice if you could just press pause and somehow recover for a certain season. And yet we recognize that no matter what's going on in our life, life continues to move forward. And as we unpack this last section of Genesis chapter 50 today, we're going to see that as life moves forward, It's not easy. There are some misunderstandings, misconceptions, wrong ideas of Joseph's brothers, which in God's will will speak greatly to you today. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, we thank you 
for your son, Jesus Christ, our savior, our king, our redeemer. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to each one of us, that when we repent of our sin, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and never returning void. Lord, it's your desire. It's at the center of your will to speak to each one of us today. So would you give us hearts and ears and eyes to hear and see how you want to transform our life, how you want to continue to grow us in Christ, or for some today, how you call them to come under the lordship of Jesus. So God, we give you our time. Lord, may you speak through me, a sinful man, with your perfect word, the scriptures. May I be an instrument and a tool in your hands for your glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. Are you there? If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, One of our ushers would be happy to drop one in your lap. It's a lot more enjoyable when you can go through the scriptures with us. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Thanks, guys. Max, right here, pal. Thank you. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Do you notice that when this mourning period for Jacob is over, they get back to Egypt and life resumes. Joseph goes back to his post as second in command to Pharaoh. The brothers go back to their jobs of being shepherds, watching over Pharaoh's flocks in the land of Goshen. And all of a sudden there is this thought among Joseph's brothers. Oh no. What if our dad, what if Jacob was the buffer between Joseph and us? What if he wants to take vengeance on us because of the terrible things that we did to him 40 years ago? And this thought creeps in to Joseph's brothers. And it's interesting to me because certainly there is a legitimate fear here. The brothers are afraid that Joseph's going to do what? He's going to take revenge, vengeance. If you haven't uh, been through the book of Genesis with us, well, why would Joseph want vengeance? Well, because his brothers were jealous of him because he was the favorite among his father. And Joseph was given things like a special coat of many colors and dad favored him for sure. And when he was 17 years old, his brothers plotted to kill him and they threw him in a pit. And one brother said, well, let's not kill him if we can at least make a little money. And so they sold him into slavery. He was bought by Midianite traders and then brought into Egypt where Joseph served in Potiphar's house, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And then those brothers went back to their father, Jacob, and said, hey, pretty sure Joseph got eaten by a wild animal. Really sorry. And for the next 39 years, Jacob believed that his son, Joseph, was dead. How many of you would want vengeance? Great, not at the mission church. That's wonderful. (laughs) Some of you are not telling the truth. Uh, Hollywood is obsessed with vengeance. The Count of Monte Cristo, Batman, entire series is literally all rooted around vengeance. And the reason why is because what do we enjoy ingesting? (laughs) Let's put it in a nicer word, justice. That's what we like, (laughs) justice. We like seeing people get vengeance because there's something in our human flesh that causes us to go, oh, I want to let them get what they deserve. And I want to begin by saying this. I am so thankful that Jesus Christ doesn't give me what I deserve because the penalty would be death because of my sin. 
And we're going to see Joseph as this prefigure of Jesus Christ give a tremendous response. Now, we may be sitting here going, well, how can his brothers, after all this time, they've been living in Egypt together for 17 years, and Joseph has only done right by them. He pursued them when they came to Egypt looking for grain. Yes, he tested their character, but he helped build them in the process. And then he prospers them by putting them in the best of the land of Egypt in Goshen. He gives them important jobs as shepherds of Pharaoh's flocks. He allows their families to be provided for. They eat at Joseph's table. They're united together as family, and he has done nothing except love on them from the moment that they came to live as a family in Egypt. And yet here we are. His brothers are going, oh, I don't know about this Joseph guy. He's kind of a wild card. He just might take vengeance on us. And do you notice Joseph's response? It says that he weeps. He weeps. Well, why? Why would Joseph cry over this? Because if I'm putting myself in Joseph's sandals, I probably wouldn't be crying. I'd probably be like, what the heck? What else do I have to do? I've loved you. I've cared for you. I've provided for you. Don't you understand how much I love you? Anybody ever talk to each other like that? And then you wonder like, oh yeah, I see that you love me so much. Uh, not Joseph. It says that he weeps. And I believe he weeps because of this. He has understanding of what his brothers do not have understanding of. He knows the depths of God's character, specifically his forgiveness and mercy that Joseph's brothers do not understand yet. And it causes Joseph anguish knowing that they're afraid for their lives at his hand when all Joseph wants to do is help give them an abundant life and a picture of the God that they serve, full of mercy, full of grace, full of forgiveness. And I want you to know this morning, regardless of where you come from, What's happened in your past, the things that you've done, maybe the things you're engaged in now, or the things you'll do in the future, know this, God's forgiveness is absolute. God's forgiveness is absolute. Absolute means concrete. It means complete. It means it is not relative or subject to opinion. It means that it cannot be diminished in any way. It means that God doesn't give forgiveness out in varying degrees. We often hear of certain religions that require penance when you do something wrong. And penance is this idea that if I self-inflict, if I self-punish, then I can get back into God's good graces. Then I can earn his favor. Then he'll love me again and nothing could be further from the truth. God's forgiveness is absolute. To give you an idea of how absolute it is, I've chosen just a few of many verses that we could look at in Scripture this morning. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which means when we repent, when we humble ourselves and come to God and go, God, I know I'm here for the 10,000th time, but I'm sorry that I've committed this sin again. Will you please forgive me? What's the promise? That you will be cleansed of your unrighteousness. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. God says, once again, I will have compassion on you or you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. In other words... Your sin will hold no power. It drowns in the ocean of mercy and forgiveness that God has for each one of us. Hebrews 8.12 And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Uh, this one is difficult for me to fathom. It says that God will not what? Remember our sins. And it's not like God is forgetful. He's completely sovereign and all-knowing. But when we consider our own sinfulness, it teaches us the depths of God's forgiveness in which that means when he looks at us, he doesn't go, hey, I know we're family and I love you, but there's that one thing you did and it's just always going to be there. 
That's not God. It says he no longer remembers your sins, which means when he looks at you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he only sees a righteous son or daughter. Holds no record of wrongs. Wow. As human beings, we have a hard time with this. It's very difficult to forget the sins that have been committed against us. And I want to encourage you. Wisdom and forgiveness go together. We are called to forgive. Whether someone has asked for forgiveness or not, we are called to forgive. Wisdom would also say it might not be healthy to enter into the same relationship that you had before with that person, depending on the sin or the wound that has occurred. Does that make sense? They go hand in hand together. Don't throw one out with the other. In Psalm 103.12, David writes, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And then finally, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. God's forgiveness is absolute. No exceptions. No qualifications. There's no vulgarity or depravity of man that can somehow be greater than the forgiveness of God when a person repents of their sin. Joseph's brothers are lacking in this understanding. And Joseph weeps knowing, oh, I want them to get this. I want them to live not a life of fear. Because do you see how this has shifted their perspective? This happens to us as believers, not just people on the outside of Christianity, but Christianity is within, where we know God. But if we don't know who he is, if we don't have an abiding relationship with him, if we don't know his character, it's easy for us to go, well, I, 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 know, that, I know that God forgives and everything, but this was a really bad sin, and I'm pretty sure he's going to get me for it. And we start to think that God is out for vengeance upon us. Here is the beauty of God's forgiveness being absolute. When we consider the cross of Christ, Jesus didn't just go to the cross to bear physical suffering. The scripture says about him that a man who knew no sin became what? Became sin for us, which means sin was placed upon his shoulders. And because God is a just God, the wrath of God against sin came upon Jesus. Meaning that if you have repented of your sin and you are a follower of Christ, you no longer ever have to worry about what being upon you. God's wrath. Because it's already been placed upon Jesus Christ. God is not out to get you. He is not seeking vengeance for the sinful things that you've done or participated in. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. He completely forgives you. Now, there are natural consequences to the things that we do in life, but there is a significant difference between God's wrath and the consequences of the decisions that we make. Joseph's brothers are afraid of what? God's wrath coming through Joseph, the payback for the evil they did. And Joseph wants to show them, you don't have to fear God's wrath. He's forgiven you of your sins. I hold no ill will against you. Amazing to me that Joseph's brothers could possibly think that Joseph would turn on them at this point. It's been 17 years. He's loved them well. He's spoken gently to them. He's provided for them. And it's easy for us to maybe go, man, I, I can't believe these brothers have so little faith in Joseph. And yet sometimes I look at my own life and I go, well, isn't this sometimes my walk with God? Has he not spoken gently to me? Has he not given me the truth of his word? Has he not been loving and providing and caring for me? And yet I find myself sometimes doubting who he is. Questioning his ways. Wondering if he really has a plan behind all the things that are going on in my life. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever felt that way? Probably many of us. And the beauty of what Joseph is doing 
is he's revealing that God's forgiveness is absolute. So what causes us to doubt? What causes us to question what God is doing in the midst of difficulty in our life? Uh, Warren Wearsby, a tremendous theologian and pastor, writes this. He says, when you doubt God's word, you soon begin to doubt God's love. Why would we ever doubt God's word? Well, I think within the church body, meaning Christians, it often comes from Bible illiteracy. We don't know God's word. Therefore, we begin to doubt his love. And Christians, I want to encourage you. It is so important to know the word of God. Because if you know the word of God, we talk about this often, then you know his will for your life. But not only do you know his will, but you begin to understand the essential nature of his characteristics that are so important. One of those being forgiveness. And if we have a misunderstanding of God's forgiveness in our life, here's what often happens. Not only do I have this distorted relationship with Jesus where I go, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I'm going to do this over here and this over here and I'll, I'll get better and then you can love me. And the problem is, is that's not only in my relationship with Jesus, it pours over into what? My relationship with other people to where, go, where I go, hey, I am not giving forgiveness until this person does. And then we start to make qualifications. I'm not giving forgiveness until this person. And then we start holding grudges. Church family, may I remind you. If you are withholding forgiveness, you are in what? You are in sin. Well, what if they haven't apologized yet? Doesn't matter. Well, what if they haven't seen the error of their way? Doesn't matter. Well, how can it not matter? Here's how. In John chapter 13, John's gospel has this profound story. Uh, it takes place. Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples. And after supper, it says that he takes off his outer robe, puts a towel around his waist and begins to do what? To wash the disciples' feet. And you can imagine what an awkward time this must have been for the disciples because every disciple at this point is probably thinking what? Oh, I, I should have thought of that. I should be washing Jesus' feet. And it gets to Peter. And Peter says, far be it from me, Lord, that you ever wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't know yet what I am doing, but you will. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, then you have no part in me. And Peter says, as he probably starts taking off his clothes, then wash my head and my hands and my shoulders too, right? Uh, Sometimes Peter gets a bad rap, but at least he's speaking, right? At least he's acting. He's the only one who goes, hey, there's no way you're washing my feet. I should be doing this for you. And Jesus says something amazing to Peter. He says, Peter, I don't need to wash all of you. You're already clean. But I do need to wash your feet. And Jesus is teaching something to his disciples and to us that is so important. This entire section of scripture in John 13 is not about what? It's not about foot washing. If foot washing were a requirement, we'd put two basins at the back doors and every time you walked in and out, we'd, we'd do foot washing. This isn't about foot washing. You see, Jesus tells Peter, you're already clean, which simply means, Peter, you've already confessed me as the Messiah, as the son of God. You already know who I am. We're in relationship together. You're saved. I don't need to clean all of you, but you still walk in the world, Peter. You still get your feet filthy dirty because those streets are filled with dirt and animal feces. And by the time you go in and the time you come back, oh, you're dirty. I need to wash your feet, which is representative of simply our sin, even as followers of Jesus Christ. And we get to the climax of that section in John 13. And Jesus says, do you understand what I have done for you? Just as I have washed your feet, I want you to do what? I want you to wash one another's feet. 
Well, because Jesus has already saved us, we don't go around saving people, but we do need to go around doing what? Forgiving one another. Just as we have been forgiven by Christ, just as he stooped so low from heaven to earth to come and wash our stinky, messy feet, Jesus says, now I want you to go and do the same. God's forgiveness is absolute, church family, is yours. Is yours. I want you to consider this week. Just take some time reflecting. Are you withholding forgiveness from anyone in your life? Is your heart bent towards bitterness or vengeance or hard towards someone who has seriously wronged you? And here's the hardest part about reflecting on this is the people who seem to do the worst harm to us are the people who probably should love us or are closest to us. And it's the beauty of what Joseph has displayed to his brothers, how Joseph is pointing us to Jesus, the people who should love him most because he's the savior of the world, who gave his own life. It's those people, people like me and people like you, who put Jesus on the cross because of our sin. And yet his forgiveness is absolute. I know that God desires to do a work in our own hearts and in our minds, that if we are withholding forgiveness from anyone, especially those in our own households, come humbly to God. And it may be that you go, listen, I don't know how to forgive after what's happened. I don't know if I have that kind of capacity. And here's the beauty. In our human flesh, we probably don't. But I know this for certain. Because of what Jesus has displayed for us and calls us to walk in his footsteps, when we pray a prayer that says, God, I need help forgiving this person, would you allow my heart to let go of the injustice and wrongs that have been done to me and allow you to be the God who enacts justice? I know this, that type of prayer is at the center of God's will. He will answer that. That's his heart's desire. Reflect on what God might do in your hearts and minds this week. Verse 18, Genesis chapter 50. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. Remember, they had sent a delegation or messengers with this most likely made up message from Jacob. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he, meaning Joseph, comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What a response from Joseph. Um, this is a powerful scene, by the way. It's most likely Joseph was in his home, um, probably had servants or attendants around. Remember, he's second in command and the most powerful empire in the world at this time. He's a man of authority. And his 11 brothers come to him and they prostrate themselves on the ground saying, please forgive us. We are your servants. Wow. Wow. Not only do they send messengers, but they come themselves as a sign of humility, as a sign of desperation. And here's what I love. Number one, in Genesis chapter 37, you'll remember Joseph had a few dreams when he was a teenager, didn't he? And once again, we see God fulfilling what he had called Joseph to. In Genesis 37, Joseph had this dream that his that he was represented by a sheaf of wheat and that his brothers were also represented by other sheaves of wheat and those sheaves bowed down to his. Here is God fulfilling what he would say he would do in Joseph's life. But now there's a decision that Joseph has to make. He is in a profound position of authority and it's true that his brothers have done great evil against him. How will he respond? And here's what I love. If you were with us 
in Genesis 48, when Jacob speaks over his sons, he removes the birthright from his firstborn Reuben because Reuben did not steward his responsibilities well. And that birthright is given to who? It's given to Joseph. And although Joseph is not the oldest, he is now the head of the family. He is in the position of authority. And look at what he does with his authority. His response is Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? He comforts them. He speaks truth into their life. And even though Joseph is this man who is now the head of his family because Jacob is dead, he's also essentially the head of Egypt because Pharaoh has given him all authority. Joseph chooses to use his position, his role that God had ordained him for, to lift and build his brethren up instead of crushing their spirits. Instead of telling them, yeah, 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 you better bow. You better grovel. This is what you deserve after what you did to me. You're going to regret this for the rest of your life. That's the world's way of applying authority. Do you see Jesus and Joseph? Do you see what God is doing, foreshadowing the coming of his son? Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth has been given to me. And what does Jesus do with his authority? He builds us up. He lays his own life down. He uses his resources, his truth, his life to pour into us. What a humble leader. I'm so thankful Jesus is my savior. I'm so thankful that I don't hold that kind of responsibility. But at the same time, many of us are called to be leaders in our family, to be leaders in our workplaces, in our communities. How will you steward the leadership that God has given to you, especially when you're wronged? When someone cheats you or slanders you, when someone mocks you, when they go around their back, well, your back, when they take credit for what you deserve, how will you respond in your authority? Here's what I love that Joseph does. He says specifically, do not be afraid. Um, I love this statement. It's all over scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Do not be afraid. But to be honest with you, do not be afraid by itself really doesn't do anything for anybody. Um, I don't like spiders. They're scary. My wife is the spider killer in our family. Big wolf spider climbing up the wall. I back up, she literally comes up and smacks it with her hand. And I'm like, get a, get a napkin? Or maybe a six-foot broom? I'm the guy who does the broom, you get the spider on the ground, then you come and stomp on it. Jocelyn just goes for it, and she often will tell me, don't be afraid of it. By itself, it means nothing. But notice what Joseph does two times. Two times he tells his brothers, do not be afraid. But he doesn't just simply don't be afraid. He gives them substance behind it. And God is in the habit of doing this. Notice Joseph says, do not be afraid. For am I in the place or the position of God? Guys, I'm not able to be your judge. I'm not righteous like our king. I don't hold that kind of authority to condemn you. My job is to forgive you, love you, and provide for you. And let God sort out his business. Well, that probably meant something to the brothers. There was substance behind that. Look at these other passages where God speaks and says, do not be afraid. In Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham as he's called him away from his family, away from his home country. He tells Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Do you see the difference between simply just don't be afraid and then, hey, don't be afraid because I will be your protector. I will be your inheritance, the maker of the universe. 
Genesis 26, God speaks to Isaac and says, do not be afraid for I am with you. In other words, Isaac, you're not alone. You don't have to go this by yourself. In Exodus chapter 14, Moses speaks to the people of Israel. Their backs are against the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is pursuing them to bring them back into slavery. And Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. King David speaks to his son Solomon towards the end of his life. In 1 Chronicles 28, he tells Solomon, do not be afraid, referencing the building of the temple of God, which was a monumental task. Do not be afraid. My God will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. God sends an angel to Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Joseph finds out that Mary has conceived a child, and he has this plan to quietly end the betrothal, the marriage. And God sends an angel to Joseph. And the angel's message is, do not be afraid, for she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. God also sends an angel to Mary. He says, Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. It's one thing to be told, do not be afraid. It's another thing to have the living God his power, his person, his authority, his divine protection, speaking into your life through God's word. This is what Joseph is doing for his brothers. This is what God desires to do for us when we read his scriptures. When we look at Joseph's life, here's what we see. That a gospel-centered perspective produces a selfless view on life. A gospel-centered perspective produces a selfless view on life. When I say gospel-centered, here's what I mean. I tend to like to be the center of my world. How do I feel about this? Is this going to benefit me? Do I want to participate? Gospel-centered is looking at everything through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Will this build another person to better know Jesus? God, am I being used according to the purposes that you've called me for? God, is this difficult circumstance that I'm in the midst of? Can I trust you with this? And with a gospel-centered perspective, it produces a selfless view on life. Look at Joseph's response to his brothers in verse 20. They've just come, prostrated themselves before him. They're begging for mercy and forgiveness. And Joseph says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Did you catch the selfless view of Joseph? He addresses the sin and the evil. He goes, yeah, you guys really meant this for evil. That was a wicked thing you did. It's not being dismissed. But it is covered by the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But guys, it was never about my suffering. It was never even about what you specifically did to me. You see, God had a bigger plan in all of this. And I see the profound ways that he's worked in my life, in your life, and in the lives of literally millions of people who had to come to Egypt in order to get food so they didn't starve during the famine. Joseph has this selfless view of his life, that it's not about him. It's not myopic. Instead, it's about, God, what are you wanting to do even in the midst of these trials, of these struggles, of these difficulties? Are you the center of your own universe? Does your world revolve around you? Are the decisions that you make with your time, with your finances, with your emotions... Are they bent to build you up? Or are they bent to be an offering to the Lord? To be a builder of other men and other women? To serve others instead of yourself? Joseph had this selfless view. God, whatever you want to do with my life, 
even though I really do feel pain and I do feel abandonment and I am scared. I know that you're using this for your good. You have a bigger purpose in mind that I cannot see. Not only do we see a gospel-centered perspective with selflessness from Joseph, we also see that a gospel-centered perspective produces a sacrificial view on life. Joseph is able to say, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Joseph has this sacrificial view to where he goes, far be it from me that I said no to suffering and people died because I wasn't willing to be uncomfortable. Instead, Joseph takes this view of God, man, that really was difficult going through that. That was a hard time just feeling like I was rotting away in prison and forgotten. I hated being accused of rape when I didn't do that. And yet you were working all of that for the purpose of getting me to the right hand of Pharaoh so that your character could be displayed and millions of people could be saved. If this isn't pointing us to Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. Isn't that incredible to see the parallels between Joseph's suffering and the sacrifice and then Jesus? The only difference is Joseph didn't understand all that was going on at the time that it was happening. Jesus was a suffering servant who knew exactly what was coming for him and still laid down his life. The sacrificial view. Church family, I want you to know, even in our suffering, which is real, it should not be dismissed. It cannot be belittled. Pain is deep. Wounds they hurt. But I want you to know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the suffering that you endure, oh, you are in good company with a Savior who understands. And God does not waste the pain of his people. He uses it for his glory. And oftentimes, it's when we suffer and respond in faith to Jesus despite our suffering that people are most drawn to Christ. I wish it happened through our success. I wish it happened when life was going good. But we have this tendency because we're human beings that when life goes good, what do we do? We get complacent. We kick back. We celebrate in our own success, but in suffering, we are laid to waste. Last week, we looked at that psalm that said, it is good that you afflicted me so that I may learn your statutes and your ways. Joseph has this sacrificial view on life, willing to lay his life down for the purpose of building up others. In Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, Joseph exemplifies what the apostle Paul brings. He says, dear friends, never take revenge. Now stop there for just a moment. When should we take revenge? Let's try that one more time. When should we take revenge? Never. It says never, which means this. When you even begin to think about revenge, when you even begin to think about paying someone back for what they've done, get it to God's feet as quickly as you possibly can so that it doesn't begin to fester and take over your life. It's kind of amazing to me that Joseph's brothers think that maybe he's held a grudge for 39 years. And then I think, yeah, that's how most people live their life. Most people go to their graves with grudges in their hearts, with withholding forgiveness from people who have wronged them or they think that have wronged them. God says, never take revenge. Now he's going to give us the why. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Because here's what I know about myself. I can be righteously angry for a very short amount of time before it turns into sinful anger. But God, who is just, God, who is perfect in all of his ways, God, who is righteous, he has righteous anger. He's the one who should take vengeance. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Let this comfort you. Sin does not go unpunished. Injustice will meet justice. 
God is not a judge who goes, hey, you know, you had a hard life. We're just going to dismiss this one. No problem. No big deal. And on that convict goes. Our society and government could learn something from this. Sin must be paid for. Justice must, must be done. But as sinful men and women, if we become the hand of justice, oh dear. But God says, I will pay them back. And here's the good news. For those who are followers of Christ, where's that penalty paid? On Jesus. For those who are not, God will enact his justice and that will result in an eternity in hell for those who have not repented. Verse 20, we've been told what not to do and now we get instruction of what we should do instead. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, do what? If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. What? Well, that's not fun. That doesn't feel good to my flesh. We're not interested in how your flesh feels. We're interested in getting people where? To Christ Jesus so that they don't perish for eternity. Now you see, God wants us in the business of building others, not crushing them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. In other words, They'll be ashamed. Next verse. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. This is such practical wisdom from the Lord. Don't let evil conquer you. When someone does something to you, we want to respond how? With evil. To fight evil with evil. And I love how God responds to evil. He doesn't respond to evil with evil. He responds to evil with what? Here's my son. With whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He will be the propitiation. The sacrifice for your sins. I'll raise him from the dead. So that you have new life. I will literally conquer evil. With good. And this is what God calls us to do. In our own life. If someone does evil against you. Find ways to pour out God's goodness. On them. Sometimes it's necessary from a distance. Where it can only be prayer. Other times it's in person with practical application of God's grace and mercy. Finally, Joseph's life, because it's gospel-centered, produces a perspective of vision for an abundant life. He produces vision for an abundant life, not just for himself, but for his brothers. Remember, his brothers are face down right now, begging, please, 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 don't hurt us, don't kill us, don't wipe us out. And Joseph goes, do not be afraid. And look at what he speaks in verse 21. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If this is not what Jesus says to us, God, I'm so sorry. I keep, I keep sinning. I, I'm a failure. I, I need you. Instead of berating us, he comforts us. I will provide for you. I want to build your family. I want to grow you in my ways. He produces a vision for an abundant life. Not because Joseph's a nice guy. Not because he just lets it slide. But because Joseph knows that there is a plan behind everything that has happened. And he trusts in God's sovereign will. He has faith. That's a man who should hold the birthright. That's a man who's using his leadership for God's glory. And I'm thankful for a savior who has been given all authority, who uses all that authority to build his church. It also says that he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We're not sure what Joseph exactly said, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, maybe gives us some insight. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation or our trials, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. Joseph sees this playing out. He sees, oh Lord, when I got sold into slavery, that was so terrible and you were with me. 
And then I got accused of rape and thrown into prison. And your favor was upon me. I knew I wasn't abandoned. And that same comfort Joseph was given. What does he now do for his brothers who are in fear and doubt laying before him? He comforts them. Remember how I said, God won't waste your pain. When you allow him to minister to you through the truth of his word, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the depths of your sorrow and your grieving. When someone close to you goes through something similar, what will you be able to do? You can comfort them in the same way you've been comforted by Christ. That's supernatural. That's not something that we can conjure up as people. That's not something a book or a class can possibly take the place of. God is the God of all mercies and of all comfort. Joseph spoke kindly to them. He didn't treat them as second-class citizens. He didn't lord his authority over them. So the question becomes, why did Joseph do this? Why did he respond this way? What was his motivating factor? Why not take vengeance? Or why not be upset that his brothers questioned his character? And here's why. Because his brothers are his family. His brothers are his family. And here's why I believe that's so important. Because that's exactly the same language that we are told that when we come to Christ, we move from children of wrath to children of God. His sons and his daughters. We literally become part of his family. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Paul says, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Picture Joseph's brothers prostrated on the ground. We're your servants. We'll be your slaves. We'll do whatever you want. You can make us worms. Just let us live. And God goes, that's not what I have planned for you. Right heart and humility, but that's not where I'm going to leave you. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba or Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his what? His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also what? Share his suffering. I love the Bible. It is both full of abundance and joy. You are heirs of Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you who are under the lordship of Jesus. And just as Christ suffered, you are called to what? To suffer also, meaning to die to yourself. To give up your ways and to pursue God's ways. To seek his word instead of just what feels good. Joseph responds this way because these are his brothers. This is his family, just as God has responded to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, you still with me, church family? So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. In other words, these verses tell us what kind of life did Joseph live? A full, abundant, and long life. Not only did he have grandkids, he got to have great-grandkids. He got to be taking an active role in leading them to the Lord and being an influence in their life. He continued to serve Pharaoh in a very high position, making the land of Egypt prosperous. And above all, he grew in his relationship with the Lord, a man of God clinging to the Lord's promises. What an abundant and blessed life that Joseph lived. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old 
and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the end of Genesis. I want to draw your attention to a few more things before we close. Like his father Jacob, Joseph had the opportunity to have family surrounding him as he took his last breaths. And he chose his words very carefully. You see, in Joseph's impending death, he affirms God's promises to future generations. With his oncoming death, knowing that he was going to die, he affirms God's promises to the future generations, which means he was probably surrounded not only by if there were remaining brothers, but more so his own children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren. And he uses his words carefully. The first thing he says is, I'm dying. I recognize I'm just a man. I'm mortal. My body is all done. But God's work in me will live on well after my last breath. And he points them to the truth of God's word all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, this would be Joseph's great-grandfather, God promises Abraham, you will live in a foreign land and you will be slaves. But after a time, I will come back for you and lead you to the land in which I promised you. Had this come true yet in Joseph's lifetime? It had not. And yet Joseph, at the end of his life, is clinging to the promises of God and using his death to point people to the promised land, or in other words, to eternal life. What a privilege. What an opportunity. Do we consider, as we march toward death in this life, will we be pointing people to life in Jesus Christ? This isn't on your screen, but Hebrews 11.22. Uh, Hebrews 11 is considered this hall of faith. Those who have, in the Bible have displayed tremendous faith. Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. The instructions for his bones was to do what with his bones? Take them out of Egypt when God delivered them from Egypt and back to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, here's why that's so important. Because after Joseph dies, it's not too long before Israel becomes slaves of a new pharaoh, a new king of Egypt. And they are brutally treated. And they are used for hard labor. And things get so bad that that pharaoh starts killing their babies to try to stop them from growing so strong. And I can only imagine in that time period that people are like, God has abandoned us. He had this promise and it's no longer. And someone goes, you can still see the coffin of Joseph. Remember what he said? That we're to take his bones when we leave this place. God's not finished. And at some point they gathered up the bones when they left Egypt. And then they got stuck in the wilderness for 40 years because of their egregious sin against God. And for 40 years, I can only imagine Israel was probably like, I think God's abandoned us. I don't think he's here anymore. I think he's left us on our own. And the dude who had to carry the box of bones is like, no, no, he's not. <laughs> I got Joseph's bones. They have to be laid to rest where God promised. And do you see how even in Joseph's death, he's pointing people back to life? Church family, you have a legacy to leave. No matter how long or short your life is, you are called to be a forgiving people, to display that forgiveness. Think of Joseph's life. He's the prefigure of King Jesus. Joseph's forgiveness extends to his betrayers. I love this about Joseph. His forgiveness extends to his betrayers, his brothers who sold him. No different than Jesus extends his forgiveness to his betrayers. Peter, who denied him three times, the other disciples who abandoned him, the Jews who put him on these false trials, the Romans who nailed him to a cross, us, because of our sin, he bore the wrath of God. Just like Joseph, Jesus' forgiveness extends to his betrayers. 
Joseph's suffering leads to many people being saved. Literally because Joseph suffered and kept his eyes in that gospel lens, that gospel perspective, selfless, sacrificial, with a vision of an abundant life, many people had food to eat and did not die of starvation. How much greater Jesus' sacrifice. How much greater his life, bringing life from death for all those who come to him as Lord and Savior. And then lastly, Joseph's death points others to the promised land, just as Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection points us to eternal life, to remind us this is not our home. This is not our eternal place. And church family, like Joseph, more so like Jesus, it's forgiveness through your life extended to those who've hurt you the worst that will point people to Christ. It's having a sacrificial view of your life that even as you suffer or endure cancer or broken hearts, that you suffer in a way that continues to cling to God's promises so that many others will see Christ in you. And then finally, God wants to use your life as you enter into death to point people to Jesus. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.